It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and we are looking forward to dialoguing with our guest tonight about the state of affairs surrounding law enforcement in the wake of recent police actions, civil unrest, and calls for police reform more specifically against a backdrop of national protests, including Bloomington's Enough is Enough rally, presidential executive orders and congressional debates on policing reforms, and even calls for defunding the police. We want to gather uh, their impressions on these and other topical issues. Joining us uh, this evening are Bloomington Police Department Chief Michael, Michael Dekoff, Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant, and pastor of the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Saginaw, Michigan, Dennis LaFoon. Pastor LaFoon was former pastor of Bloomington's and New Albany's Bethel AME Church. And now as we are conferencing this interview due to COVID-19 precautions, we apologize in advance for any technical glitches. And with that, welcome everyone to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for accommodating us, making time out of your schedule. There's some there's some happenings going on in our in our nation and 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 state and local that we wanted to address today. And uh, Chief Geekoff, while we have you on, I'd like to ask a leadoff question. In a recent article that appeared in the Herald Times, you sort of reiterated the Bloomington Police Department guidelines. Uh, that sort of mirrored the Obama era reforms that were recommended limiting force. And a lot of this was in the wake of the police shooting of Michael Brown back in 2014. And we noticed that a lot of cities started making changes. Now, Bloomington was no different, but you attest that Bloomington was one of the, the first cities that got on board with these new policing reforms. Can you describe six years ago what type of things you implemented to address the concerns, the national concerns? So at, at the request of Mayor Hamilton, he asked me to, uh, when he became mayor, to review uh, President Obama's 21st Century Policing Report. And um, he wanted me to review that and um, also include the Board of Public Safety in that review. And so we took, um, uh, it was over six months that we, uh, reviewed that we uh, presented uh, we presented information e <coughs> excuse me each month to the board of safety um, there are six pillars and within each of those pillars there are recommendations um, that go along with those uh, we went through all of all of the recommend all the pillars and all the recommendations and there were there were some that didn't apply to us um, uh, for instance we uh, we don't have like a jail, so those don't apply to us because we don't we don't run the jail. The sheriff runs the jail. Um, but there were two that we did. There were only two that we didn't implement. Um, one was tasers. We we don't currently have tasers, 
Um, and the other was um, a flexible schedule, which had to do with uh, a contractual issue with the, uh, uh, with the current uh, FOP bargaining unit and, and uh, the ways our, our schedules are done for police. So out of all those recommendations, um, uh, we were able to, to implement um, um, most of those. And so, um, as I said, we took uh, a very lengthy time to go through each pillar and each of those recommendations with the Board of Safety and got their um, approval as we move through that, that document. Um, and so uh, I don't believe there are very, I, there are, I'm sure a lot of police departments who have implemented it. I'm not sure how many are there are in Indiana, but I think we are the only agency in Monroe County that has, has gone through that document and implemented those recommendations. And a follow-up question, if I can. Um, okay, these were recommendations or were these more in the form of, of mandates to implement change? Because something you just said, that Monroe County was one of the few that may have implemented these changes. And that brings to mind, well, there, there may be other locales out there that have, in, well, that have decided, well, we don't need to. Yeah, so- But so as we've seen lately, anything can happen which can change dynamics of any uh, sure. police department. Sure, so what, what this was, was it was a fairly large group of diverse people that President Obama put together to just review policing and, and reforms in policing. And um, Chuck Ramsey, who was the former police chief in a variety of cities, I think the last place he was police chief was in Philadelphia, um, was one of the, one of the leaders um, of that group that looked at this. And they took quite a bit of time and, and um, had testimony from a variety of different people with different backgrounds as to what the nation could do and what types of recommendations could be made um, for police change, for change in policing. And so that's, that's what came out of, uh, that's what the product is, is it's, it's a, uh, it's a, a document that recommends um, a lot of different changes in six kind of six areas. Um, and again, it was, it was voluntary. It wasn't anything that was mandated. Um, and I think, you know, with politics, a lot of places just dismissed it. But there are a lot of really good community policing type recommendations in there. Um, we, we found that we were already doing quite a few of them. And so, um, but it just, it just made sense that um, there were, there, there was this broad section of people that came together to look at it. And, and we, we, should, we should do that. I, I think all agencies should look at it um, uh, to see if what they're doing fits those guidelines. And if they're not, if they don't, then they, they should really consider looking at those and implementing those changes. Yeah. Um, Chief, you also have some other policies uh, in addition to the ones that you mentioned, uh, many of which are being called for by protesters in different organizations, uh, such as uh, constant training on de-escalation skills, implicit bias, crisis intervention. Uh, you already have a pro prohibition against using chokeholds. And then you provide data uh, as a means of uh, transparency for the public. So, and, and that's not even all of them. Um, do you see the police department in Bloomington going beyond that and implementing even more policy? Sure, I, I think that, um, I think we should always be reviewing our policies. I think we should always be reviewing 
uh, best practices. Um, you know, some of the things that uh, came out of the just, just the most recent uh, protests, um, you know, we were reviewing our policies and um, what we found was it was, for instance, a duty to, to report, a duty to stop somebody, you know, if they see an officer doing something that's, that's not right, that's out of pocket. You know, we looked at our policies, it's, it was implied, but it wasn't direct. So we've, we've just recently changed our policy to make it direct. So there's things like that. I think that we can always look at what we do, look at our policies um, and, and make them better. And that's, that's what happened with this. We, we saw a couple things in our policies that, that were there implied, but it wasn't as direct as, as we believed it should be. So we've, we've changed those. Um, again, I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's incumbent upon us as, as law enforcement that we always have to constantly review our policies and our, our procedures because things change all the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 30 years ago, chokeholds might've been okay, but it's, it's not today. And, and so um, I think it's, it's good. And, and one of the things that, that kind of forces us to constantly review our policies is we're accredited. We're, we're nationally accredited by the commission on, on law enforcement accreditation. And we are constantly every year reviewing our policies looking for the best practices. So um, I think that is, you have to do that. I don't think we can just write a policy and then just say, okay, we got a policy on it. Yeah. Uh, I think you constantly have to review those and update those. Well, speaking of uh, change, what, what are your thoughts on how fast uh, and how much, not, not just a public uh, mood, but also the corporate mood of the country is evolving regarding law enforcement and interaction with the black community? Um, it, it, it doesn't surprise me. I, you know, you can look back, um, you know, for instance, I was on, I was on a conference call yesterday with the Indiana Chiefs Association and the Indiana Sheriff's Association and some legislators, some legislators in Indianapolis talking about police reform. Um, and there was a Senator on there, uh, that, um, was talking about, look, this, this isn't new. This just didn't start. It's been going on for a long time. And, um, you know, you can even go back to Ferguson, you know, there, there was a lot of attention at Ferguson and there was a lot of call for reform. Some things got done, some things didn't. And here we are again. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, I think this can be served as a wake up call to look, we, we in law enforcement have to make changes so that we rebuild trust so that we, we rebuild the confidence in the community that we can do our jobs effectively and, and safely without innocent people being killed. And so um, it's incumbent, I think, of, upon law enforcement leaders to listen and to implement those changes. Clarence? If, if I can um, ask as far as Bloomington Police made these changes and, and has made a, a law, an all-out effort to be more transparent. Do you coordinate these changes with the IUPD and with the sheriff's, sheriff's department? So, so each, each branch of so-called government, city, county, the university, they have their own police departments. Um, I can only influence and effect change with the city of Bloomington Police Department because that's, that's the one I am the chief of. Now, we do do joint training. A lot of times, um, because we are the largest agency in the county, 
we take the lead in that. And, and so um, we're, we're all looking for best practices um, because we have the largest agency and we have the most calls for service. We usually take the lead in that. And so um, a lot of those other agencies, and there's more than just the sheriff and IU, um, there's like nine different law enforcement agencies in Monroe County. And so, um, uh, again, we train together. So we try to make sure that we take the lead and that other agencies follow us. But I, I can't control what they do. I can only make recommendations and, and have those discussions on, on what those best practices are. Well, the challenge I see is that if, say, an IU cadet or one of the other branches out there, if one of their officers um, does not follow training, and takes matters into their own hand, everybody gets labeled in this city. And I, I think it's incumbent as much as possible to really stress uh, working together, uh, try to be probably uniform across the board if at all possible, because again, it's, it's public perception. Uh, if we're pulled over or if we're stopped, you know, we see law enforcement. And we, we sometimes in our mind don't distinguish between who's who. I mean, it's, there is a psychological uh, uh, thing that goes on when you're pulled over by law enforcement. I mean, everybody, if you've not experienced the light on the highway behind you when you're doing well over the speed limit, then <laughs> there, there's a psychological thing that happens. But any way to, to enforce consistency or to, to really stress, hey, we have to all be on the same page and be a plus. One thing that I've always thought that may help any community is just the old notion of having a beat patrolman or, or patrol woman out there who will get to know the public personally, uh, whose presence they can always count on almost like clockwork. Uh, they're a familiar face. And in some communities just, you know, making friends with neighbors, that type of outreach will go a long way. And your thoughts on that? Yeah. So um, I, I totally agree, Clarence, going back to what you first started talking about. Um, if, if, if another officer somewhere else does something, it, it, it tends to taint everyone. Um, that's, that's clearly, I think, what's happening here. We, you know, um, the officer in, Minis in Minneapolis, um, he, should have, he shouldn't have even been on the force. If, 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 you know, what I've heard is about his disciplinary record and the problems that they've had, he should have never even been a police officer still. And so what he did... Um, is spread across the country. And, and, you know, so, so I, I frequently talk about, um, you know, getting, getting painted with that big brush and, um, you know, the, the things that happen there, you know, I'm not saying it won't, it couldn't happen here, but we take precautions to make sure that it doesn't. Um, that's why when we do training, we do, we try to do joint training with the other agencies so that everybody is trained the same. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're just the, the comments about the, the beat cop getting to know, getting to know everybody. The mayor, every time he swears in a new police officer says, the more the community knows about the police and the more the police know about the community, the better things will be. He is always saying that. And I, I agree with that. We, we try uh, really hard to do community outreach, to build partnerships. Um, because again, people are, are, I think naturally, um, can be distrustful of the police. I'll admit, I, I've been I've been a police officer for 33 years. If I'm speeding down the highway, not that I speed, but if I see a police car get get behind me, I get nervous. Um, and so, um, 
again, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. We've tried to do beat things, but unfortunately, um, the other the other problem that a lot of times doesn't get discussed is right now it's really hard to recruit and hire police officers. People don't want to enter the profession because of everything that's been happening. So, you know, our numbers are down last count. I think we're down 10 officers. So it makes it difficult for us to be able to um, do those those outreach programs and do those more individualized neighborhood uh, patrols where they get to know the officers because we just don't have people to do it. And so, um, you know, the whole COVID crisis right now has really impacted our outreach efforts because we can't we can't have meetings. Um, you know, we used to do coffee with a cop. We discontinued that because we got uh, we would get complaints on businesses who wanted to partner with us. And so, um, you know, we, we are in the process of revamping that. We just got a new substation at the Switchyard Park. So we were going to start doing stuff there. Then COVID hit. So there's there's lots of things that are going on that um, um, right now are, are impacting our outreach efforts. But I totally agree with you that that um, that is a very important component of of police community relations is having those those individual officers getting to know people and work with them in their in the areas that they live. Final final follow up at this point for you. Um, this is a two parter. One, you mentioned that officer in Minneapolis should not have been a police officer. So I'm curious now in your training, are, do you use adequate background checks uh, to see how many departments the, this individual's been with? Then is there, and as much as you can answer this, some things may be confidential, but are there psychological assessments that are given to try to get a gauge on the type of individual, uh, how they react to stress and pressure? Because some of these decisions are split second and they could sure. be, they could be life impacting. And um, just the amount, and then this is a two-parter after that, it, and, and I don't want to forget it, but domestic calls, I've heard that domestic calls have been on the increase as far as domestic violence. And if you okay. could take the first part of that first, sure. as far as background checks and training. So hiring, so the, hiring new police officers, um, there's there's really kind of like two groups of people we can hire from. There's someone that has no police experience, and then there are the um, there are people who are certified police officers. Um, so I'm going to just talk about the certified police officer part because um, that also will encompass non-certified people that we hire. So. If someone is a police officer and they're they're applying with our agency, um, one of the one of the things that we do is they're required to sign a release statement, and so we will contact their past employers, we'll contact their their past police departments, and it basically gives that agency um, the authority to release everything on that person, and so um, we will we will do that. Um, we've been fortunate when we hire when we hire uh, previous police officers. It's usually somebody who knows somebody, so we will we will already kind of know whether or not um, they're a problem employee at their current agency. Um, so we do that background check. Um, we also send investigators uh, to the agency to actually review their personnel files because we have that release. And so most police agencies will say, yeah, here's their file. You can go through everything. So we, we will see what type of discipline they might have had. We'll see what kind of commendations they might have had. We'll see what kind of employee they were. Um, past the background check, um, we employ um, through PERP, which is the it's the Indiana Retirement System. 
Um, there are certain medical and psychological tests that, that were required by statute to um, put new applicants through. And this is for sworn and non-sworn. So we have a psychologist that um, basically does MMPI type tests. There's some other ones that I don't, I don't know what they're called, um, but they do those kinds of tests. And then they actually have it, they sit down and, and basically have an interview and a conversation with this person. And then they give us their professional opinion as to whether or not they believe that they, they would be the right type of person uh, to be a police officer. So we get all of that information back. Then we present information to the Board of Safety. The Board of Safety can ask questions um, because it's actually the Board of Safety that hires police and firefighters. It's, it's, not, it's not me, it's not the mayor, it's the Board of Safety that does it. And that's based on Indiana statute. Uh, the Board of Safety is responsible for the hiring, firing, and discipline of police and fire uh, personnel. So, so there's, there's a civilian uh, uh, review board component to the hiring uh, of police officers also. So when everybody gives their, their, uh, their, their, uh, their approval for the hiring, then the person's hired, then we put them through, um, if they're already certified, we put them through a 16-week field training program where our, our officers train them. And if they see problems or they see red flags, um, you know, they, they, they bring that to our attention because we certainly don't want to hire uh, someone that's going to be a problem for us. And so the field training program in the past has, um, you know, for lack of better terms, washed people out of, of the process. They've not been able to, to, to go on and be an officer. Background checks have washed people out. So um, I believe we have a pretty thorough uh, process when we hire people to make sure that we're not hiring someone else's problem. Now, the second part, I think, was domestics. Um, yeah, have you seen a rise in domestic um, violence so, calls? So what's happened with, with the last several months with COVID is we've seen a, about a 30% decrease overall in the calls for service that we're getting. And what that's done is um, it seems like it's highlighted some of the more serious things, like uh, our gun calls and our domestic violence calls. They're not really, there's not been really an increase in, in other time periods, but it's just been highlighted because we've had a decrease in a lot of minor calls. And so, um, you know, we're, we're still responding. We've had, we've actually unfortunately had um, some kind of high profile ones that have been kind of violent where, where uh, um, just, just the other day in the newspaper there, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, one, of, uh, one of the people that we had been investigating for a domestic violence call um, was actually shot by the police in Clay County. Um, and so uh, th those are still very dangerous calls. Um, and so uh, we, we continue to respond to them. I, I, I wouldn't say there's really been an increase, but I just think they've been highlighted more because we've had a decrease in some of the minor stuff we've been doing. Thank you. Prosecutor Oliphant, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Good. Good. Not bad for my age, thank you. Um, we are seeing some really fast moving and sweeping changes uh, in law enforcement, but prosecutors uh, have not been left out of that. So what I wanna ask is, how do you see your office being impacted by some of the uh, changes and, and the demands and even the actions that, that prosecutors have taken up to this point in, in a couple of these cases? Well, as you know, um, it's been important to me since I took office to try to address some of the racial disparities we have in our local criminal justice system. And I think that 
some of these recent events have really lit a fire in, in a way in a lot of us to try to make sure that we're taking action. I, I think it's important um, that we act swiftly, but not so swiftly that um, we're not considering all angles and, and doing things the smartest way we can. Um, you know, my, I, I think we discussed back in January, my role as a prosecutor involves working proactively with law enforcement and other organizations to make sure that we're enhancing public safety and the quality of life in the community. Um, you know, a lot of times we are, we are not first responders, so we're usually receiving our information from law enforcement and then determining what action to take at that point. And so it's incumbent on, upon prosecutors to commit to reducing racial and ethnic disparities that arise from our decision-making processes. Um, you know, some of the things my office has done is uh, back in December, uh, deputy prosecutors in my office received a three-hour implicit bias training. It was taught by uh, Hannah and Monica at building a thriving, compassionate community here in town. Um, they also provided us with a reading list on systemic racism. So it's my intent to continue offering implicit bias training annually and making sure that we're up to date on that. Um, I think one of the things that my office really needs to work on is consistent data collection and analysis and being a bit more transparent with statistics. Um, we actively participated in the study by the, uh, the county commissioners uh, commissioned RJS Justice Services and Inclusivity to Strategic Consulting um, to do a, a study of our entire criminal justice system, um, sort of aimed toward reducing the overcrowding that we're facing in the jail. Um, but they, they did take a look at some of our uh, racial data as well. And unfortunately, we don't have that report back yet, but I think that that, that process definitely drove home to me that uh, we may need to consult out with IU or some statisticians and demographers to see what we can do to collect better data and be more transparent with that because um, that'll help us identify disparities and make sure we're working to reduce them. I have uh, one more follow-up question and then I want to turn sure. it over to Clarence. Um, one of the, the calls for police reform includes police not being able to investigate themselves. When you look at the uh, Ahmaud Arbery killing in Georgia, where the, pro the prosecutor had a long-time relationship with uh, a deputy who ended up being a part of that, a part of that shooting. And uh, maybe or maybe not as a result of that, you, that's arguable. The prosecutor ended up determining that uh, nothing needed to be done here, no investigation, no charges. And it just appears that there was an obvious conflict there. So do you think that prosec prosecutors should not be allowed to investigate police departments where they have a, a close, a long-standing relationship? Well, I think it certainly undermines public confidence in the results. Um, you know, when you've got that either a, an actual conflict of interest or at least a perceived conflict of interest, um, you know, we rely very heavily on our close working relationship with law enforcement to make sure that we have thorough criminal investigations and can prove cases beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's an important relationship. And, you know, you can kind of look at, for an example, Mike Freeman, um, he was the, he's the Hennepin County attorney who initially charged Derek Chauvin. And, you know, he was criticized by some who felt that he um, 
undercharged in that case initially. Um, he's, you know, I, I think even though he's one of the very few prosecutors in the country who's actually successfully prosecuted a police officer for murder, um, there's still some questions of confidence in his decision making when it comes to police officers and, and agencies that he's worked with closely. So um, during the 2018 Democratic primary, I actually received that question at a forum and I stated that I would likely request a special prosecutor in the case of a local police involved death. This is a pretty small community, really, and I worked closely with all of our police agencies throughout my career. And though I'd like to think that I'd make a dispassionate decision based on the facts and law, I believe the public would be better served with an outside look. Um, you know, some of the reading I've done, you know, over the course of my career to just try to stay up to date on different discussions about how we should address racial disparity and police action shooting suggests that maybe an independent unit should be created staffed with senior prosecutors and investigators um, that, that focus just on these kinds of issues. You know, another option that I've also read about is a second look by the state's attorney general or, or some other independent prosecutor when a local prosecutor makes a decision not to file criminal charges in a police involved death. I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I can tell you that here locally, I, I think that I wouldn't blame the public if they wanted somebody other than me to consider what to do in those circumstances. And if you're just joining us on Bring It On The Voice, you just heard was Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant. We also have with us tonight Bloomington Police Department Chief Mike Deakoff. And uh, last but certainly not least, Pastor of Bethel African American Methodist Episcopal Church in Saginaw, Michigan, Dennis LaFoon, who was for years a very prominent pastor here at uh, Bethel uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And we'll be getting to him shortly. As a follow-up, um, Madam Prosecutor, you're, you're hinting towards the difficulty in, pr in prosecuting some of the law enforcement cases, especially those that are so high profile that we see going on now. And decisions must be made as far as uh, do we go for what degree of, of uh, murder, first degree through third degree or whatever variant. We even saw something interesting, which was announced felony murder. And how do all of these differ in the difficulty in prosecuting each one? I think there was this long protracted debate as far as should someone be charged with third degree or second degree and why one is maybe easier to prove. Uh, but can you share with our listeners uh, your thoughts on that or perhaps experiences with that? Um, I'll do my best here. You know, we're dealing with law that's outside of Indiana, which isn't necessarily something I've looked at very hard. But in general, you know, the law gives police wide latitude to use deadly force um, when they fear that they are themselves or others would be seriously injured or killed. And so when you're prosecuting these cases, you have to be very thorough because in a way the burden of proof is a bit higher than it is in other homicide cases because of that legal justification that could potentially be there. So, um, you know, when you look at the different kinds of murder, like for example, in uh, the George Floyd case, they ultimately, initially he was charged with um, third degree murder, um, but then the Attorney General Keith Ellison amended the charges up to second degree murder. And so second degree murder is essentially what we would call felony murder here. And what that means is you don't have to have the intent, the specific intent to kill someone. 
um, but rather while you're committing a felony, uh, you someone is killed. So um, in this case, the predicate felony they used was assault in the third degree, specifically, you know, putting his knee on on his neck. And so I think that, um, you know, the reason it gets charged that way is you don't have to prove that specific intent to kill. You just have to, you know, prove that he engaged in this conduct and while he was committing a felony, this person died. So it's, I think it's a little easier probably to prove that felony murder versus um, a first degree murder, which would be um, done with premeditation as a specific intent to kill someone. I, I'm noticing, sense? yeah, it does, it does. It, but also uh, sort of leads into this next question uh, with the introduction now of something we didn't have say 20 or 30 years ago, and that is video. Both cell phone or now body cam that's uh, worn on officers or and I think the, the Wendy's, the recent uh, shooting at Wendy's, they had cameras mounted on the restaurant itself. And so all these things are taken into consideration. And then also there, there are audio recordings uh, that prosecutors can take into account, which speak towards perhaps intent or level and degree of, of intent, or whether or not the officer did fear legitimately for their life. And then you get into angles of the video. Then you get into... Um, <laughs> lapse of time and 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 i guess my if i have one critique and that is the the level of or the number of times that body cams all of a sudden malfunction uh, when they should be operating properly and then you don't get the clear picture and so then the prosecutor all this is weighing it's all laid at your table and then you need to make a determination so so how do you sort through all of that and, and what should perhaps be the thought process for any prosecutor, for all those prosecutors that are listening right now. What should be the thought process for a prosecutor? Yeah, so, um, it, you know, we try to look, we try to look at everything we have. Ultimately, it's our job to file charges if we believe we can prove every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And so you have to have evidence that supports each element of an offense to file. And when you're looking at evidence, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, we ever get a perfect case, right? There's, there's just no, no such thing. Well, in the George Floyd situation, eight minutes, 46 seconds was pretty clear. And yes. that, was, that was an anomaly. Because uh, yes. I don't think you would rarely ever see that. And I think that's why, in the, in the view of some, if there was the... Uh, the ideal situation to, to just really bring the charge, that's it. But now this recent one with the Wendy's case, there are different angles and there, there are all types of things. And yeah, I can get that if, if this takes time to sort through. But um, now it seems you get more and more of the citizenry that are like uh, uh, quasi-photographers because everybody's going to whip out the camera now. And that's another thing. They, they whip the camera out and you're going to get all this different angle view which should perhaps make the job a little easier as far as piecing things together. Uh, yeah, I think different points of view is important because one of the critiques of body-worn cameras that I've heard, of course, is that they don't necessarily show the perspective of the person that's wearing them even. So, um, you know, there can be some things that just don't make it onto, onto the camera, um, onto the video that are happening. So I think having as many different angles as possible is great. But I will say one of the things that's really challenging with having so many videos out there, 
immediately in the media and on social media is that um, when it comes to selecting a jury, when it comes time to try these cases, um, you want an impartial jury, somebody that hasn't been influenced by media, social media, and all of these outside um, sources of information. Um, and, you know, so you end up sometimes with a jury that's, that must have their head in the sand or something if they haven't been exposed to some of this material in the media and on social media. And a defense attorney will definitely take advantage of that to say, Your Honor, we can't get a fair break here. Because it's everyone, really it, my my client's been tried and and found guilty in the public arena already, and how can they get a fair trial? So you have all that to sort through. Chief Decoff, I saw you were trying to chime in at one point. Did you have something to add? Well, I was just I was going to talk about body cameras, and you know that's that's one of the things that um, people are talking about with, with reform is requiring everybody to have body cameras. Um, but again, it's it's a piece of technology; it can break. Um, you know, our, our body cameras that we have, you know, most officers wear them on the front of their uniforms, but, um, at night you don't always get a good picture because they're, they're, they're set up to show you what the officer is seeing. Um, and so, uh, a lot of time, I mean, you, you can get sick watching body cameras cause it's constantly bouncing up and down, moving and all, and all that. But the important part is, is it kept, it captures audio also. And so. Um, but again, you're, you're never, I don't think we're ever going to get, um, a system that works where you capture everything. And so, um, people just need to remember that, you know, if, if we have body cameras, we've had body cameras for many years, we were one of the first agencies in the state to get body cameras, but they don't capture everything. They, they capture a lot, but if people think that that's going to save everything, it's not, it's going to be very helpful, but it's not, it's not the end all to solving all, all of the problems. And, and then too, with the dashboard cams, I mean, that's, that's, um, exactly that's right. another, that's another perspective right there. Yes. Um, uh, Pastor LaFoon, we have not forgotten you because there are some <laughs> dynamics that, uh, that I want to, um, to, to really bring you in on one in the black community. And, and while you were in Bloomington and I did take the time to mention that you've been in these different different communities or wherever you've been, you've just transformed the community. It's not the same. It's always positive. But uh, uh, when you were in Bloomington, you were active. Uh, you helped to um, orchestrate some of the workshops that were held in church uh, with a good friend of ours, uh, Ruben Marte, who's been yeah. on our show a number of times. And one in particular jumps out and, and the title was so catchy that I have not forgotten it after all these years. It was How to Survive a Police Pullover. And that's a whole nother dynamic as far as I talked about the psychological um, reaction to being pulled over by law enforcement. Sure, the respiration sure. rate goes up, everything goes up. Can you talk to us about what you feel the black community is going through, the thoughts? And I know you're not the answer person for all this, but you bring a unique perspective to this and I wanna hear that. Sure, uh, and, and, and as, a, as a pastor, my, my main engagement is, is with the, the people. Um, not only the uh, the people at the police department, uh, not only the the people at the courthouse, but uh, but also uh, the mainstay is that the people in the neighborhoods and and communities. And so, uh, what uh, what I have noticed more than anything is, uh, uh, and and I don't know if the numbers that that I have are still right because it was just a, a couple weeks ago, but um, George Floyd. Uh, is uh, was really 
his 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 death um, was the uh, was a spark plug for uh, protest uh, and marches um, in all fifty states in the United States and over uh, what eighteen countries, and that is unprecedented. Um, and unprecedented to the point where I think the, the numerics alone uh, and the response alone let us know that the world was really watching. Um, but what I've noticed, Clarence, is, is that, um, that uh, those who have coordinated the protests and the marches um, uh, are the same uh, generation that has been missing uh, from the churches. Uh, and so uh, these young people, these, this millennial generation has taken to the streets in such a way um, um, that not only was it peaceful protest, um, but the planning, uh, just the sheer planning uh, and messaging uh, that has uh, been presented has been something that, that I don't think any of us have, have ever seen before. And we need to, to really take note uh, that these young people have taken it upon themselves to not only hit the streets, but to make sure that there is a plan of action. Uh, I have never seen a response um, by, uh, 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 by the, the, the media, by companies um, um, to do a wholesale change. I mean, transform, transformational change. Uh, now, I, you know, when it comes to the, the Aunt Jemima and the Uncle Ben's, you know, that's, that's not the type of change that's at the forefront uh, that we're looking for. Um, but it does speak to, to how people um, want to make sure that they are on the right side uh, of this movement uh, and are not going to wait until someone mandates uh, the type of ch transformational change that needs to happen. And so everything from the conversation about defunding the police uh, to continuing to uh, stand behind the Black Lives Matters movement um, to even making sure uh, that although uh, our current president isn't um, even mentioning uh, bias or racism or, uh, or even police brutality, um, that, uh, that the message is not getting lost and that we are claiming uh, our own narrative and not allowing for uh, someone else uh, or a, a systemic narrative to get out there um, and, and perpetuate itself uh, so that we uh, won't be in the same position in terms of people not knowing or not being educated or claiming ignorance. Uh, and that can only happen when we, uh, when we maintain our own narrative. Mr. LaFoon, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Long time no talk. Yes. I want to echo something that Clarence said, uh, that we sincerely do miss having your, your presence in the community down here. Like he said, you were very active and there's still a little bit of a void there. So uh, either we're going to find somebody or you're going to have to come back one, one or the other. <laughs> Anyhow, when, when we reflect back on the protests uh, in, in the 60s, oftentimes you saw churches and pastors out, out in the front of that but uh, not so much today. Uh, but you, you mentioned something that I thought was very interesting. And you said the, the generation that is out there leading the protest now, the same ones that were missing from the church. Yes. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that. 
Well, there's not a pastor that I know that uh, that is not um, wondering at what point the church lost uh, in the engagement with uh, with uh, youth and young adults. Um, and especially when I got here, when I was in Bloomington, it was very interesting because the demographic of of our congregation being in a college town was a, a, around what twenty four twenty five, uh, and so you had young people and and were engaging in conversation and, and great ministry. But when I uh, moved to Saginaw, the demographic of my congregation and many congregations like mine is uh, much older. And so I came into a church where I've got a significant number of, of older uh, members and then some children. But that demographic of, you know, uh, uh, graduating uh, <clears throat> 18 to, uh, to, to even 40 uh, is very diminished, if not, if not gone. And so as I talk to young people in the Saginaw community, I imagine uh, that the conversation is very similar those who I've talked to who are the grandchildren and children of the adults that I have at church, when I see them coming to programs or to celebrations, I'm, I'm pulling them to the side. I'm just like, you know, where, where, where are you? What's, what's going on? And, and the response that I'm getting is, is that at some point the church oftentimes has lost its social conscience. Uh, and so there's a significant amount of worship and, and uh, wonderful ministries happening in the church, um, but uh, young people do not see the social action um, that uh, that may have existed and 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 clearly existed in during the civil rights movements, uh, where a lot of the the movement was birthed out of the church, uh, and so now you you see that uh, that churches uh, oftentimes have not made the decision. Uh, to to go and put the foot and leg work uh, into the the community in terms of making a decision that the church is going to stand up for a certain position, uh, uh, whether it be uh, civil rights, whether it be uh, poverty, whether it be employment, uh, whether it be uh, social uh, justice, uh, uh, you name it, whether it be healthcare. And so, what I'm finding is the young people say, "Hey." If you uh, can't, uh, if your church is not working towards uh, um, uh, evaluating how the church is going to respond to homelessness in the area and, uh, uh, and police brutality in the area and education in the area, uh, then we have no reason to, to come to church. You know, uh, we, yeah, we grew up in the church and, and we know that it's a, a good place to do ministry, but uh, me and my generation are all about action. Uh, all about the action is taking place outside of the walls of the church. And so if a church is not going to take on the meaningful uh, ministry of taking down strongholds outside the church, uh, then we're not going to spend a significant amount of time within the church. And this is just the, the conversations that I'm having uh, with, uh, with, with young people in the, in the community. And we can see it. I mean, when you look at the marches that are still going on, who do you see out there? You see young people. And it's not just young Black people. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's a... Uh, 
a multicultural, multi-generational uh, situation, a lot of times that the church has not chose to jump into. I, uh, I, if I could jump in, I noticed over the last three weeks, a lot's gone on within two months period of time. And it's just, my head is swimming at times, but I, I did view the memorial service for George Floyd. And say what you want to about Reverend Al Sharpton. Uh, he delivered a eulogy that really resonated with the heart and soul of our nation, not just with the black community. And he talked about how he had been on the front line, how you know, he's no stranger to civil rights. And, and he sent a challenge out for not only the youth, but everyone to get re-engaged with that in a peaceful way, in a productive way, uh, to speak truth to power. And I, I was really taken aback in a, in a very in a pleasant way by the manner by which he spoke these truths. And uh, your thought as far as as we go forward in the remaining time we have, we have about seven minutes left, but your thoughts, not that you need to take all seven minutes, but your <laughs> thought, Pastor LaFerd, as we sort of move forward as a nation, this year is unlike any year I, I can call in, in long memory. We got a pandemic going on. We have a national election. Our economy is not the best that it should be, and on and on and on. But as we sort of navigate through 2020, looking ahead towards decisions that must be made in November, um, what do you have to tell the people? You know, um, COVID-19 has, has positioned us uh, where, like I said before, the entire world is watching. And... Um, uh, I'm watching news <laughs> every day, all day these days, just to uh, because things are happening so quickly. Um, but uh, this pandemic has given us the opportunity uh, again to look at transformational change in a way that we have never looked at it before. If it's broken, we have the opportunity to fix it. Uh, if it uh, if it needs fine tuning, we have the opportunity now to, to 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 take it apart and put it back together. But the only way that it's going to happen is through some um, uh, uh, some uh, some conversations, some very uh, 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 creative and innovative conversation. I was just looking at a graphic on social media the other day, and it it it. it it shows that blacks have been enslaved in this country longer than we've been free, you know, and that is a, 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 a piece of information that is very hard to wrap your head around mm -hmm. that uh, in the United States of America, that blacks have been enslaved longer than we, than we have been free. Um, that segregation, you know, uh, uh, was a, a, a significant number of years. Um, and, and now that we're looking at Juneteenth coming up next week, when we're talking about celebrating freedom, that's a huge piece. Mm -hmm. Celebrating freedom in the United States of America. Um, but the conversations that, that need to happen um, have to be those that are sometimes uncomfortable because everyone doesn't know. Ignorance is huge in our country. And some people are choosing to be ignorant. Um, because they just don't want to to state the facts. 
Uh, I know that 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 there's some guilt out there that people may feel that uh, that there's some uh, uh, defending of of families that that people want to stand on. But the reality and the truth is is that blacks in America have been dealt a great injustice for a very long period of time, and that uh, and to know that people don't want revenge, um, but want equality and want equity, uh, and to understand what that means and to not deny it. Nothing burns my bonnet more than to look at the news and see uh, that there are people that will deny that there is a systemic race problem in, uh, in the United States of America. Uh, and if we continue to deny, if we continue to push it away, it ain't going nowhere. And at some point, you know, uh, my, 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 uh, my grandmother-in-law used to say all the time, even dogs get tired. You know, the people that are protesting and the people that are rallying right now are, are ha have uh, gone into it with a very peaceful approach. But if, if change doesn't happen, you know, that peace turns into, uh, turns into something otherwise. And, uh, and that's just the truth. Uh, and so what, okay. what our nation is, is going through right now is, uh, is the unfolding, the, the peeling back of many layers uh, that, um, uh, that need to be dealt with. And it can't be dealt with with denial. We're denying that it happened. We're denying that the, the, the problems and issues of race uh, 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 exist or not. Uh, it's there and it needs to be dealt with. And we need to have some controversial conversations uh, uh, in order to start a dialogue of truth. And so uh, what I tell people all the time is if you're not willing to have those, uh, those types of conversations, then the type of change that we need in our nation and even in our world, because again, the world is watching and, and they're going to, and they have uh, looked at us as leaders and said, hey, if this is what the U.S., if this is what they're doing in the U.S., then we can do it too in our country. We can do it too in our situation and we can stand for the same justice that they're uh, standing for in, in the U.S. And so not only are people, uh, is the world watching, um, but they're waiting to see what it is that we're going to do and what type of transformational change is going to happen. Okay. That, well, thank you. Well, I was going to say to that point, um, uh, and thank you for that. I was going to say that June 30th, there is scheduled a public forum in the city of Bloomington where county officials are going to discuss issues of community policing. And that this is, of course, the start of hopefully many dialogues. There, there have been exchanges with the public, both through peaceful protest and rallying. And now we see a concerted effort to bring county officials with the public. Uh, and Chief Decoff or uh, Monroe County Prosecutor Oliphant, can you talk about, will you be there, both of you, at that public forum? Uh, I believe I'll be there. I don't know yet what my role will be. I'm not involved with organizing it. Uh, it's being organized by the county council. Okay. I will not be at the county one. The city council had one last night, mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, I was not on that one either. Uh, do you think these will be the start, hopefully, and many more to come. You can't resolve it all, just like we cannot resolve everything in this hour forum that we have today. Um, but hopefully this will be the start of many more conversations. And if not, uh, an enhancement maybe to the, um, uh, the review board, the police review board, or maybe new dynamics added to that review board um, to help and assist you in what you do. Yeah, I, th I think that there, uh, I think this is the first of many conversations. Um, 
the Board of Safety was scheduled to have a meeting earlier this week. Unfortunately, it got um, hacked, and so they had to end the meeting. Um, it was on Zoom, and, and someone uh, got someone who shouldn't have taken control. Yeah. Take, took control. Um, and that can and that can happen. And that yeah. can happen. We um, we have actually run out of time. Um, now I can go another couple hours, but I think. Uh, yeah, I really <laughs> wanted to get into. <laughs> I really wanted to get into the topic of defunding the police, but so so you all know what that means. That's right. We got to do it again. If you want, if you want to have another another uh, program, I'm more than willing to, to come back. So. Well, you heard it here first, friends, and uh, <laughs> we want to to thank um, for joining us for this dialogue. Wilmington Police Department Chief Mike Deakoff, Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant, and Pastor of the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Saginaw, Michigan, Dennis LaFoon, for joining us to talk about the state of affairs surrounding law enforcement in the wake of recent police actions, civil unrest, and calls for police reform. Now, of course, we resolved all our issues in one hour, so there's no need to talk about this again, but no, that is not the case. We hopefully will plan another part two. Um, because we're unlayering uh, just a host of issues and topics. And, you know, above all you're getting, you get an understanding. And as Jerry Butler said, understanding is mellow. And we'll try to resume this again at some point. So I want to just thank you all for joining us, William. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have any ideas for this program, we would love to hear them. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, and we had help uh, from the WFHB News Department through uh, the help of and assistance of our director, Kate Young. And tonight's board engineer is Kate Young and Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamel Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea, and please tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. 